It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Looney. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to a word. This, this message is called the German mind, and which isn't... Uh, a very pleasant uh, message at some levels, but at the same time, it's very interesting for us to understand what we are being saved out of. When, when God is going to take a believer, he's going to renew their mind. He is going to change their mind. And so as a result, when you understand the German mind, you're going to understand a mind that has been distorted, has been uh, taught something that is going to root it in uh, some very dangerous ideology. Uh, but this word is Lebensraum. And technically, it means living space. Now, that's not going to make any sense to you at first, but this is going to be very critical in understanding World War II. But most of us don't study World War II in trying to get into the German mind, because uh, it's a very uncomfortable place. Uh, but it really helps for us to understand a lot that took place. So, Lebensraum, uh, living space. So, some of the contributing factors to the way a German was thinking in well, 1939, 1940, 1941, where we're at, is what we could call Darwinian evolution. So Darwin's origin of the species has come out in the late 1800s and has greatly influenced Germany and a lot of the thinkers in Germany. So the high-minded Germans who always like to be on the cutting edge are grabbing a hold of this hook, line, and sinker. And this is greatly impacting and beginning to train their thinking and their processing because they're beginning to recognize, wait a minute, survival of the fittest. And they begin to apply this to nations. And so the nation that is able to be the fittest should actually overcome the weaker nations. And this is just how it should work. This is Darwinian evolution. And then you have uh, what is, I'm going to call the pure race, or what is known to the Nazis as the Aryan uh, race. And so this is going to be the honorable people. And these are the ones that are not like the lesser people, like the Jews or like the communists. These are going to be the uh, blonde, blue-eyed, uh, healthy uh, race. And so anyone that is not of that pure race, well, we might need to eliminate them off the earth. They are bringing impurity into the world. And so you begin to connect these two ideas together and you begin to understand the Nazis. And there's a third element that is going to impact greatly the flow of events, and that's what's going to be called the stab in the back, which I'll, uh, on Wednesday I'm going to go a little deeper into this. But at the end of World War I, World War I is going to be 1914 to 1918, and at the very end of World War I, there is going to be a German collapse of, uh, of their governmental system, of their military machine, and it's going to bring about a, uh, a failure to win the war, and they're going to lose, yet they're going to be considered the aggressor and the initiator in the war, and as a result, there's going to be a great penalty that comes to them, and that is the Versailles Treaty, or the Treaty of Versailles. And so the Germans, a good pure-blooded German, is going to... Uh, not feel good about this. They're going to feel like they were betrayed by certain governmental leaders, by certain uh, political uh, idealists, and they're, they're going to actually look at this as a stab in the back, and they're going to blame uh, the, the, lo the German loss in, in World War I on the Jews and the Bolsheviks. And so as a result, you're going to see a retaliatory mindset, a vengeful mindset that is brewing inside of the Germans, the pure race Germans, 
And so those that believe that they are the fittest, those that believe that they are Aryan, and that those that believe that those that are uh, unfit to live should be removed. And so you're going to see a very retaliatory mentality come into the German mindset uh, back in this time period. So uh, I'm going to introduce you to Friedrich Ratzel, uh, who is a geographer. And so this is in 1901. So remember, uh, World War II is going to launch in 1939. So this is 38 years before that. This mentality, though, had taken root in the German system long before that. So I'm going to give a quote to uh, Friedrich uh, here that he actually didn't say. He did say it, but he didn't say it this way. If I tried to give you quotes of what he did say, this would be a very high-minded uh, message today. And I'm not trying to give a lecture on this. I want you to understand it. So I'm going to give a very basic understanding of what he taught, what he believed. As Darwin has helped me see, Germany is like a living organism. If it is to live, it must grow. This is the survival of the fittest. Germany's geography is not sufficient to meet its need for growth and development. Now remember, Friedrich Ratzel is a geographer. So he's looking at this from this evolutionary vantage point saying Germany is like an organism. It's a living organism. And if it is healthy, it needs to grow. And for it to grow, it needs to take over other nations that are weaker. And that's how it's going to supply for itself because it needs more agricultural lands. It needs more oil. It needs more timber. It needs to supply for its growth. For Germany to survive, it must feed upon the weaker elements around it. Take their geographic strengths in order that the German people might expand their habitat to match their growth, strength, and need. If the German disposition in biology is the fittest, then it must displace and remove that which is less fit. The Germany state needs Lebensraum. So that's living space. He's the guy that invented the word Lebensraum, which is going to be a word that Hitler is going to grab a hold of and use with fierce agenda. The Germany state needs living space. We need to get some elbow room, guys. We need to stretch our boundaries. We can't just live like this. I mean, we need more timber. We need more agricultural land. We need more oil. We need space for our people to grow. There's lesser people out there that are hogging up some really good land. We need to take that land. So World War I is actually the deliberate German expansion to the east. And so what you're going to see in World War I which is again 1914 and 1918, is they're going to take Friedrich Ratzel's ideas and they're going to be saying, you know, we need to get this territory while we have it. And so they're going to begin to expand. Now they're going to lose it in the Treaty of Versailles. Everything that they gain, they're going to lose it and more. So they're going to actually shrink after the end of World War I. So here they have this desire to grow and expand and it gets them in trouble. And they get slapped on the back of the wrist and everything goes south for them. And now they're even smaller than they were before. So huge territories gained only to be lost by the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. The Oberost. Now, I don't speak very good German. I actually have German heritage. Uh, one of the uh, leaders, if you've heard this series, one of the leaders of uh, the German military, in fact, the high guy, a big guy at the end, his name was Eric Ludendorff. And so uh, my dad's name is Ludi, my, his last name. My mom's maiden name was Obendorf. So if you combine those together, it would be like Ludendorf, and my name's Eric. So that doesn't bode well for me, right? And so 
I can speak pretty freely on the German situation, but I can't pronounce uh, their words very well. The Oberost, which is the Upper East, is how the, uh, the Germans would understand it. This is the German military kingdom to the east. This is what they would dream about at night. When, when they would lay in bed at night, they would dream of the Oberost. They wanted the lands to the east of them. Oh, if they could have Austria, if they could have Czechoslovakia, if they could have Poland, oh, if they could have Russia, if they could have the Balkans, oh, the rich farmland out there, oh, the oil that is out there, oh, all the timber forests that are out there. They would just dream and dream and dream of the Oberost. So now Hitler is going to come into power, 1933, and he's going to grow in his strength, and ultimately he's going to become a dictator of this country. And what is he craving? First of all, he wants to get back at those Jews and those Bolsheviks. He wants to make them pay. But he's hiding this at a certain level in his global political views. He's trying to hide some of these notions. And... He wants uh, the Aryan people, he wants a pure world. So if he's going to take territory, he wants to purify it while he's doing it so that the lesser people are removed. He, he's, he's a fanatic for cleanliness, if you want to say it that way. He would have been a guy carrying around a bottle of Purell. He would have been making sure he was washing his hands at all times. He did not want anything unclean in his midst. And he viewed the Jews and the communists as unclean. Hitler craved the return of the Oberost, the Upper East Kingdom. So there's a picture of Adolf Hitler, if any of you are seeing this live. I don't know if we have it. Do we have that on the, the, the stream? Uh, oh, good, so you guys can see it. I know, it's a beautiful picture. It's always fun to look at Adolf Hitler, isn't it? Adolf Hitler believed the ideal Lebensraum, remember that means living space, was to the east. Austria, the Sudetenland, Czechoslovakia, Poland, the Balkan states, Russia. So what you're going to see in World War II, this was in his mind long before. See, he's not going to, he's going to attack, yes, the Sudetenland, Austria, and Poland. That's how Poland, uh, when he attacks that, that's how World War II starts. However, many of us in the very beginning are going to think, well, he just seems to be as much after Belgium and the Netherlands and France and Great Britain as anything else. Actually, he wanted to silence them so he could go after his Oberost. He wants to deal with Great Britain and France because they're his great threat so that he can go after his kingdom. Not only was this territory loaded with oil, timber, and rich farmland, but it was wasted. This is Hitler's mindset, by the way, not mine. But it was wasted on people groups that were inferior to the Germanic race and unfit to govern such powerful, lush, and lovely territories. It was high time that the fittest organism demonstrated their superiority and power over the lesser species. Now, it's interesting because there's a lot of people propagating Darwinian evolution today. And, of course, most people would say, oh, I totally disagree with what Hitler's doing here. However, Hitler is simply reasoning out of Darwinian evolution. If he really is the strongest, then the strongest should win. I mean, this is, this is not a moral thing. This is just a practical Darwinian thing. Darwinian doesn't, Darwinianism, evolution, doesn't teach morals. It teaches the, the most strong will survive and, and win. And that's all he's doing is flexing the muscles of Darwinian evolution. Hitler vowed, and this is in the Holocaust encyclopedias where I got this quote. Hitler vowed that Germany would never again be defeated by a lack of resources. In his unpublished second book, he lamented that the German people is today even less in a position than in the years of peace to feed itself from its own land and territory. 
1936, he glowingly spoke of the incalculable raw materials in the Urals, the rich forests of Siberia, and the incalculable farmlands of the Ukraine. Germany should, and this is Hitler's mentality, Germany should concentrate all of its strength on marking out a way of life for our people through the allocation of adequate Lebensraum for the next 100 years. This is his goal. He wants to have enough growing space, enough living space for Germany for the next 100 years. Very noble ambition, don't you think? So here's another quote from the Holocaust Encyclopedia. The drive to the east of inferior population, the, I'm sorry, the drive to clear the east of inferior populations in preparation for German colonization led to intensive planning for the mass starvation of over 30 million people there. Policy guidelines issued before the invasion of the Soviet Union stated unequivocally that many tens of millions of people in this territory will become superfluous and will have to die or migrate to Siberia. With regard to this, absolute clarity must reign. So Hitler is plotting and planning ahead of time, saying, I'm going to take this territory, but that's going to leave at least 30 million people that are extras. Because he needs slaves for his, his regime, but there's going to be about 30 million bonus people that he's going to have to deal with. Oh, what a pain. So he's actually strategizing mass starvation efforts. When you look at World War II, it actually helps make sense of what Hitler is going to do when he goes to the East. When he is going to fight against the Soviet Union, which technically hasn't come, come about in our timeline yet. At the time of 1941, where we were at, the Soviet Union is actually siding with Hitler and helping Hitler fight Great Britain. Little do they know that Hitler is conspiring, plotting to destroy them. He wants their territory, and he is already plotting to destroy tens of millions of their people. There's another quote from the Holocaust Encyclopedia. By blaming Jews and Bolsheviks for the backwardness of the region, remember the stab in the back theory? The plans also reinforced other forms of Nazi anti-Semitism, which is anti-Jewishness, demanding the removal of Jews from the territory and eventually their physical destruction. So the German mind, this is going to be my simple enunciation for it, certain people are lesser due to their intelligence. So if you, you're not a very smart character, well, you're lesser, according to the German mind. Certain people are lesser due to their race. Well, if you're of a certain uh, race or heritage, ethni your ethnicity is of a certain order, well, then you are lesser. And in the German mind, at least to Hitler, he felt that that lesserness sometimes meant that you should be obliterated and killed. I mean, that's quite the conclusion. Certain people are lesser due to their physical imperfections. Hitler was known to have killed deaf people, mutes, lame people, simply because they were deaf, mute, and lame. Isn't that a, just an incredible thought? In other words, he did believe in this. He, uh, one thing you can say of Hitler is he did believe what he said he believed, and he practiced it, and he acted upon it. Now, it's horrifying, but this is what he believed. Certain people are lesser due to their not being German. Just not being German made you lesser. I mean, even he had an esteem for the French and the, great, and, and, great, and the British people. However, they were still lesser because they were not German. So I'm going to inverse this same line of thinking. Certain people are greater due to their intelligence. Certain people are greater due to their race. Certain people are greater due to their Aryan features and phys physical health. And certain people are greater due to their simply being German. 
And so this is the superior race. This is a mentality of great arrogance that began to sweep through the, the German nation uh, leading up to World War II. But it was also in World War I. This wasn't absent. This had begun long before this. This Darwinian evolutionary strain of thought actually was greatly impacting the German people, which are a very intelligent people. So Adolf Hitler, he's going to give a message to uh, Goebbels, who's his propaganda minister. Listen to what he tells him. Bring up the Jewish question again and again and again, unceasingly. Every emotional aversion, however slight, must be exploited ruthlessly. The emotional aversion to Jews is to be heightened by all possible means. And then printed on the front page of the main German newspapers every day was this quote. The Jews are our misfortune. He who knows the Jew knows the devil. This propaganda began to spread rampantly through Germany. Now remember, Germany is now taking over most of Europe in this time, and they're spreading this notion throughout Europe. And so wherever the German Nazi regime would take over, they would begin to kill the lesser, the backwards, the inferior, who they deemed to be primarily the Jews. So, We've talked about what the German mind is. What is the biblical mind? Is this the biblical mind? No, not even close. You see, the way God thinks is very, very different than the way the German was thinking back then. Ironically, if you were to look at Germany, you would have called it a Christian nation. Even at this time, there were 45 million Protestant Christians in Germany at the time of Hitler. Now that's, I don't know what percentage that was, but it was a huge percent. I don't know, it was 80%, massive percentage of it. And so what you're going to say is, well, shouldn't they be Christian in their thinking? Just because you have Christians in the country does not mean that a biblical thought pattern is reigning. And the same thing you could say in America today. Just because we have Christians or we have a Christian heritage does not mean that we are thinking and reasoning and living like Christians today. What is the biblical mind? Well, let's look at a few examples. God desires all men to be saved. So could you imagine if you were to inject that into Nazi Germany? Hey, Hitler, uh, I know you're going out to destroy people. Did you know that God desires all men to be saved? I mean, talk about flipping the, the, the whole situation. God in Christ has come to seek and save the lost. That's Luke 19.10. You see, he came to seek and to save the lost not to destroy. Seek another's wealth, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10.24. Well, that's, a com that's completely different than Levenstrom. Levenstrom is saying, hey, seek your own national wealth. I at the expense of those around you, just take their territory and obliterate them so that you can take care of your own wealth. And what God's mindset is, is seek another's wealth. Of course, Jesus is going to model all of these he is going to lay down his life that others can live. He is going to give up his strength that others could have strength. Romans 12, 3, consider others as more important than you. Could you imagine how different that is than Nazi Germany? Consider others as more important than you? The Nazi mindset was we are superior, we are better, we are more important. And as a result, we don't care about anyone else. Matthew 25, 40, God has a special place in his heart for the orphan, the widow, the outcast, the disabled, the imprisoned, the foreigner, and the weaker party. And what you do unto them is what you're doing unto God. So the mindset of the Christian is actually completely inverse to that of the Nazi. James 2, 1 through 8 is going to talk about this. It's going to talk about 
putting certain priority on certain people, whether it's because of, you know, in this case, in James, they were rich and wealthy and well-dressed with jewelry, or whether it's putting, uh, removing that from someone because they don't have these things, or they don't have physical health, or they don't have the ethnicity that you prefer. My brethren, this is James 2, 1 through 8. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool, or as Hitler would say, go to the concentration camp or Siberia. In other words, you get out of my territory. This is my Lebensraum. You have, not shown, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble, that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. So imagine if we could somehow get to Hitler and say, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighboring Netherlands, Belgium, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Sudetenland, Poland. These are your neighbors, Hitler. Finland. Norway, these are your neighbors, love them. The Balkans. You see, he didn't love them as himself. He loved himself at the expense of all others. Now, I know we can look at Hitler and wag our head and cluck our tongue and say, how horrible. And yet, the reason I'm bringing this up isn't just so that we could have a lecture on how bad Hitler is. It's to understand that this is the very nature of selfishness. This is how we are all hot-wired from the very beginning. I still remember my mom. I think she was studying something about the depravity of man or the total depravity of man at the time. And she made a statement when I was young and in the kitchen. She goes, Eric, you could be just as bad as Hitler. And I remember thinking, what? It, how, that's ridiculous. I could not be that bad. And I'm not going to turn out to be Hitler very likely, right? Okay, I'm hoping you guys could agree with that. However, I understand what my mom is saying. We all have the same propensities. Now, not all of us have the same position to have that type of influence, but we have the same propensities. If not for the grace of God, well, we could all end up in those, uh, those directions. So the myth of the lesser people. This is something that has been propagated, I'm not going to say just by Hitler. This is all throughout the ages and generations. The lesser people. And so whenever you begin to treat a certain people as lesser, it actually is falling into the devil's playbook. This is how the devil thinks. The devil wants to get us thinking this way. The myth of the lesser people. So here's my question for all of us. Do we have a craving for a Lebensraum? You know, I, I've pondered it at times. I remember hearing about a community uh, I think it was in Indiana at one time that was going to be modeled after a Thomas Kincaid village. I uh, remember he was the painter. Uh, and I remember it was called Simpler Times or something like that. He had a book called Simpler Times, which I thought was just really cool. And I remember thinking that would be really pleasant. You know, if you could just eliminate all of this impurity and you could just have that purity, 
that just sounds beautiful, wonderful, and nice. And so the reason I'm saying that is because some of you could say, yeah, it sure does. I I want you to recognize that there's a certain desire that we all have for a Lebensraum, a living space that is absent of yuck elements, of that other thing, that those other people, those people. If I were to say, who are those people in your life? The they that are always sort of this cacophony in the background, making noise, and you're like, oh, I wish they would shut up. You see, we would love a world without them. And so I want us to be watchful of how our souls handle the world in which we live. You see, we see Hitler, and we can look at him and go, what a terrible man. And yet I want us to recognize that the Spirit of God needs to deal with each one of us to recognize in each one of us that there are people that we would like to have eliminated from this earth as well. So a conservative Lebensraum, a conservative living space. Imagine a country without this one people group, okay? Now you can fill in the blanks of who that one people group would be for you. But, you know, I could think of quite a few very low-hanging pieces of fruit on that one to pick from. Imagine a country without this one ideological camp. Everyone that thinks like this, imagine if they were removed. You know, that's what Hitler did. He believed that liberal ideology or communism was the bane of Germany. And if he could get that out, if he could get that out of the world, he would spare the world. And so it's interesting to just recognize, imagine a country without this one ideological camp. That's what he was doing. Imagine a country without this stain on our purity. This backwards people. You know, there's such impurity in our country right now. And I know that many of us desire it to be removed. And that's actually a godly desire. Purity is a godly thing. Hitler's version of it, which is racial purity, very dangerous. Moral purity, wonderful, right? And yet, how do we approach these things? There is a God way to approach them. So I'm going to give you a strange fact as we conclude today. And that is that God craves a Lebensraum. Doesn't that sound terrible? Hitler craved a Lebensraum. Yeah, he craved a fleshly Lebensraum. He wanted it for his own glory, his own strength, his own people. He wanted it his own way, purified of all that was opposite of his own thinking. God craves a Lebensraum, and he will get it. It's called the kingdom of heaven. But you know who his Lebensraum is, his living space? It's you and me. He desires space to move in and establish his kingdom. You know, Hitler had his Oberost, his upper kingdom. God has a kingdom that he desires to build in this earth. However, it is not a selfish kingdom like Hitler's was. It is not a fleshly kingdom that seeks the harm of those around him. It is a kingdom that establishes strength, that shows value on the individual. It seeks and saves that which is lost. He wants to be founded and grounded. He wants his living space to be in the, uh, in the weak, in the least, in the lost, in the dying. He desires to invade the lives of men and make them rich. He desires to bring his own oil, his own timber, and his own farmland to the table. He desires to benevolently give and to share of his life. Hitler was looking for a Lebensraum, and it cost him everything, and it cost 60-plus million people their lives because of it. Jesus is desiring a Lebensraum. He desires us, and as a result, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people will find life because Jesus is after his living space. 
Father, I ask that you would take your place in this world. Lord, we desire your kingdom to come and your will to be done here as it is in heaven. Lord, help us distinguish between light and dark, between flesh and spirit. Lord, help us discern and to negotiate these paths in our culture today. I pray that we would rightly reason, think, and live in a season where it appears that darkness has the upper hand. Lord, teach us your ways. We don't want to be as Hitler. We don't want to reason from the flesh, reason from self-interest. We want to reason from Christ. Loving, kind, peace-oriented in every regard. Lord, we love you and we submit to you in these matters. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.